0: You're listening to Bonafide Needs, Season 2, Episode 11. Hi, welcome back to Bonafide Needs. I'm Bill Olver, Managing Editor of the pubK Group. In Ultima Services versus the Department of Agriculture, a federal district court held that the Small Business Administration's reliance on the rebuttable presumption of disadvantage for its 8 business development program violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. That decision created a cascade of developments as SBA froze new 8 applications and then issued clarifying guidance to 8 participants. To examine this and other developments, Arnold and Porter partner and Bonafide Needs co-host Mike McGill is joined by senior associate Tom Pettit. Tom represents government contractors in litigation, mergers and acquisitions, and investigations, and advises clients on a variety of regulatory compliance issues. Tom is a U.S. Marine Corps veteran who also brings experience working for a top 20 federal contractor and in the general counsel's office of a federally funded research and development center. Tom litigates bid protest, contract claims, and prime subcontractor disputes before the GAO, Court of Federal Claims, Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, the Boards of Contract Appeals, and SBA's Office of Hearings and Appeals.
1: Tom, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me.
1: So the last year has been, I think it's fair to say, a momentous one for the Small Business Administration's 8A business development program with numerous recent developments. One critical development is, of of course, the federal court decision in Ultima Services Corporation versus Department of Agriculture. Why don't we start with some background on that decision and its implications?
2: Absolutely. That is, uh, of course, a very important decision, and it does not look like the government is inclined to appeal. So uh, the SBA has made some changes based on it, so we'll uh, get into it. So in July 2023, uh, in the ultimate services case, the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Tennessee enjoined the government from using the rebuttable presumption of social disadvantage in determining eligibility to join the 8 business development program. By way of background, the SBA administers the 8BD program, which was created by statute under the Small Business Act to provide various forms of development assistance to qualified small businesses accepted into the 8a BD program. The benefits of this program for 8a participants include competing in procurement set aside for 8a small businesses and receiving 8a sole source contracts, as well as receiving one-on-one business development assistance, including, for example, helping with developing business plans and priority eligibility to receive federal surplus property. So to qualify for this program, a company has to meet three principal requirements one is they have to qualify as small just like any other small business the second is they have to be unconditionally owned and controlled by one or more socially and economically disadvantaged persons and they must also demonstrate a potential for success there's a, there's another fourth category of eligibility requirements that generally seem to receive somewhat less attention and that is the requirement that the socially and economically disadvantaged persons must have a good character, be U.S. citizens, and reside in the U.S. And the standards for good character are somewhat amorphous, and there is a fair amount of SBA discretion in that. The decision, the ultimate services decision, focused on the legality of SBA's administration of the social disadvantage requirement. SBA's regulations, specifically 13 CFR, section 124.103, establish a presumption that members of designated groups are socially disadvantaged. So those groups include, using SBA's terminology, Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, Asian Pacific Americans, subcontinent Asian Americans, and members of other groups designated from time to time by SBA. Because the presumption relies upon race-based classifications, the Court held that the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution require the regulations to survive strict scrutiny under long-standing Supreme Court precedent. The Court held that SBA's use of the classifications failed to meet the strict scrutiny standard. This was the case for a number of reasons. One reason was that SBA had not identified specific episodes of past discrimination, but instead based the presumption on generalized assertions of past discrimination. SBA tried to justify the racial classifications based on national statistics about difficulties minority business enterprises have historically faced. The court concluded that those statistics reflected broader societal discrimination but did not include specific instances of discrimination relevant to individual applicants. The court also held that the government did not show that the government had engaged in intentional discrimination or was a passive participant in discrimination in relevant industries. In other words, the government had not established any governmental role in that discrimination and had not tied the presumption to remedying some government action. The court also concluded that, among other things, the government had not shown the rebuttable presumption was narrowly tailored to redressing past or present discrimination. The upshot of this decision is not that the 8A provisions in the Small Business Act or the entire 8A program are unconstitutional, or that the government cannot use the 8A program to cure discrimination. The court's holding is limited to the rebuttable presumption of social discrimination.
1: Tom that's a great summary of ultima services so what's the wh- what has SBA done in response to that decision and the injunction and what are the implications on uh, of the decision and SBA's response on companies that are already in the program
2: in the wake of this decision SBA suspended the 8a application process to allow SBA to evaluate the court's after conducting that evaluation, SBA made changes, and on September 29, 2023, it reopened the 8 a application portal and introduced a new requirement. Now, applicants cannot rely upon the rebuttable presumption for social disadvantage and instead must prepare a so-called social disadvantage narrative explaining how the owners of the 8 a applicant have been socially disadvantaged. Current 8 a participants are also affected by this decision. SBA is requiring those participants to submit a social disadvantage narrative and reestablish eligibility before they can compete for new 8-A contracts. There's no indication that the government intends to terminate existing 8-A contracts or apply the rule to orders under existing contracts.
1: And I guess there's a nuance there with respect to orders under existing contracts uh, that, that would turn on whether the contractor was in an established 8A pool. So its status as an 8A contractor was already established or it will be established for the first time for purposes of a task order procurement, right?
2: That's right, Mike. And SBA's guidance doesn't really address this release does not directly address that question. So in the size context or the socioeconomic status context, if an agency awards an IDIQ contract but does not set aside that contract or any contract vehicle for small businesses or for specific socioeconomic statuses, then the first time that status or whether size or socioeconomic is relevant is at the order level. And so small businesses will need to qualify as small or under the appropriate socioeconomic status at the order level. And that could certainly apply here where if SBA has not made, if if an agency has not made a determination that at the IDIQ level, that a business, a small business qualifies as an 8A small business, then they will need to qualify as an 8A small business at the order level. So that would essentially be considered a new 8A contract.
1: And... So we've discussed Ultima Services and the injunction and the SBA's response to it. What is the status of the injunction in light of SBA's action? What's the what's the status of the court case?
2: So the court case is currently ongoing. There are some, you know, there's a motion for permanent injunction that's pending. So, so the case is not finally concluded. The court hasn't entered final judgment in the case. Uh, There has been no indication that I've seen that the government intends to appeal the decision. Um, They did not seek an interlocutory appeal, and it does not appear um, that they have made at least not a final decision on whether to appeal after the court issues or enters final judgment.
1: And so presumably the SBA's position is that they've navigated the injunction, and even if that becomes a final injunction, that they're... Their revised approach to the presumption, um, or their, their 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 new approach to determining status, I should say, is uh, consistent with the law and navigates the injunction.
2: Exactly. So, from SBA's perspective, or what I expect is SBA's perspective, they probably believe that they have essentially nullified the rebuttable presumption. Now, there's going to have to be a social disadvantage narrative that explains how a specific individual has been socially disadvantaged. So it will no longer be enough for that individual to be a member of an identified group of individuals. And one thing that remains to be seen is how SBA is going to evaluate those social disadvantaged narratives. Presumably there will be some level of discretion. Um, there's not a significant amount of guidance on what a company has to show to prove that it is socially disadvantaged, you know the, the standards against which that's going to be evaluated are still somewhat up in the air. Uh, another issue is the extent to which an offeror or a, a prospective A A applicant uh, could challenge the A A status of a competitor of a of, a, of an awardee. Currently, it can be very difficult, if not impossible, under many circumstances to challenge the ADA status of a small business because SBA has essentially made that determination. And so, similar to certain other scenarios, um, it's not clear the extent to which OHA is going to consider uh, protests that would challenge that status And, and the content of the social disadvantage narrative and SBA's assessment of the social disadvantage
1: narrative. That's a, I think that's a great summary of Ultima and, and SBA's reaction to it and where things stand. So why don't we shift gears just a bit and focus on the SBA's rule this year related to the 8A program. So on April 27th of 20, 2023, SBA issued a final rule that made various changes to the 8A BD program. And changes to the rules that apply more broadly to the, the SBA's contracting preference programs. So, turning first to the 8A program specifically, what are the key changes, Tom, that SBA made to the 8A program?
2: So, first, anybody who has read the 8A rule uh, has seen that it's, I think, roughly 300 pages long. I mean, this is very detailed, it goes incredibly down to in the weeds. And so, it's impossible to cover every update and every change in that rule during the course of this podcast. Um, So we're going to focus on the the highlights of that rule and and some of the more significant changes. So first, turning to eligibility, the rule does make certain tweaks to eligibility requirements for the 8A program. Perhaps most significantly, and as we noted in the prior discussion on the Ultima Services case, to qualify for the 8A program, a business has to qualify as small. If SBA denies a company's application to enter the 8ABD program solely because the business does not qualify as small, the applicant can request a formal size determination. This is not really a a significant change or perhaps even a change at all. However, if SBA concludes that the company qualifies as small, the business will now automatically be entered into the 8ABD program. That is a slight change. There's no longer a reapplication process or anything else that the applicant will need to do if the sole basis for rejecting the application is that the applicant did not qualify as small under the applicable mix code. If there were other reasons other than the applicant's size status, then the applicant will need to reapply and it has to wait at least 90 days to do so. Another area in which there were some changes uh, relate to changes in control. So, SBA generally requires an 8A contract to be performed by the participant that initially received it. Under that standard, not only is assignment and innovation restricted, but if an 8A small business undergoes a change in ownership or control, contracting agencies are required to terminate 8A contracts for convenience, not default, unless an exception applies. One exception is where an 8 concern will continue to be owned and controlled by disadvantaged persons. SBA must pre-approve all ownership changes in writing, except under narrow circumstances. One such scenario is where all non-disadvantaged individuals or entities hold no more than a 20% interest in the concern both before and after the transaction. Although pre-approval is not required in that scenario, the 8 concern must notify SBA of the ownership change within 60 days after the change. The rule left that exception intact, so that's not an entirely new exception, but clarified that when determining whether non-disadvantaged individuals own more than 20% of the concern, SBA will aggregate the ownership interest of those individuals' immediate family members and any individuals who are affiliated based on an identity of interest. Some might argue that this isn't necessarily a major change as much as a clarification, uh, but it certainly does uh, inform requirements related to change in control under that scenario. Another exception is where SBA waives the termination required. SBA can waive the requirement if the ADA concern submits a request in writing and prior to the change in ownership or control, or in the case of death or incapacity no later than 60 days after the occurrence, certain criteria to apply. It remains to be seen how SBA intends to apply this waiver provision. There were waiver provisions that uh, existed prior to this rule. Um, And a lot of these are gonna deal with sort of the, a lot of the changes will deal with the intricacies of of SBA's application of the waiver uh, provisions. Additionally, ADA participants, and turning back to Ultima, ADA participants need to think about how the Ultima decision affects changes in control. New owners, must meet the social disadvantage narrative requirement that SBA has now adopted. So if there's a change in control and the new owners are not socially disadvantaged and the a a participant will no longer qualify as an a a Ultima, of course, is not going to have any relevance or impact. However, if the new owners claim to be socially and economically disadvantaged, and the 8A participant wants to continue to maintain its 8A status, those new owners will have to, again, complete the social disadvantage narrative, and SBA will have to assess that, and then the company's ongoing 8A participation, as well as eligibility for new contract awards.
1: And so, Tom, the the SBA rule obviously came out before the SBA Reworked its application process for 8A businesses in light of the ultimate decision, and so the way you understand the the way those uh, the way that the agency will sync its new rules with its new approach to 8A status is it's going to essentially require that narrative in connection with change of control if an entity, uh, or rather if the new owners of a business. Uh, intend to rely upon that status.
2: That's exactly right, Mike. So as we discussed, the new owners to for the small business to continue to qualify as an 8A small business, the new owners got to meet those same requirements for social and economic disadvantage. And so that requires, even pre-Ultima, that would require SBA to conduct that analysis. The only difference here is that SBA can no longer use the rebuttable presumption due to the court's injunction, at least unless and until the government appeals it. And then that decision uh, is reversed. And again, there's no indication that SBA intends to do that. Um, And even if it did, there's no guarantee that it would obviously be reversed, could very well be affirmed. Um, But SBA is going to need to apply that same rationale to determining whether a new owner meets the social disadvantage requirement.
1: So SBA in the same rule, in the the same final rule, they also clarified the so-called ostensible subcontractor rule, which is not limited to the 8A program that has broader effect. So for our audience that's not familiar with that rule, what is the ostensible subcontractor rule and how did the SBA adjust that rule or clarify that rule in this rulemaking?
2: So the ostensible subcontractor rule is one of SBA's various affiliation tests, and affiliation focuses on the extent to which a small business should have its average annual receipts and employee headcount aggregated with other businesses. And the ostensible subcontractor rule test focuses on when a company is a subcontractor in name, but SBA treats them as more than that. So to delve a little bit more into the substance of that rule, the ostensible subcontractor rule provides that a contractor and ostensible subcontractor are treated as joint ventures for size determination purposes and are therefore affiliated for determining size status in a particular procurement. And the particular procurement uh, issue is, is important because there have been a lot of instances in which Uh, small businesses that are prime contractors have teamed with a large business under a particular NAICS code, and SBA has determined that they're affiliated under the ostensible subcontractor rule. In many instances, when SBA makes a size determination, that size determination can apply to a variety of different procurements. That's not the case for the ostensible subcontractor rule test, and, and that's laid out even in the size determination itself. So, that's something important for, for businesses to keep in mind is they can still qualify as small, except not for that particular procurement, or at least not that particular procurement based on how the proposal is currently structured. If an agency accepted revised proposals, it is very possible that that a business would be reentered into the competition, could revise its proposal and address whatever issues and, and negate any ostensible subcontractor will find so turning back to the substance of the ostensible subcontractor rule, SBA's rules define an ostensible subcontractor as a subcontractor that is not a similarly situated entity and performs primary and vital requirements of a contract or of an order, or is the subcontractor upon which the prime contractor is unusually reliant. So there's a lot in this test. Uh, OHA has historically considered four factors when determining whether a prime subcontractor relationship triggers the ostensible subcontractor rule. Those four factors are commonly known as the Dover staffing factors based on the name of the Dover staffing case. SBA in this rule has adopted three of those factors into its regulations. Specifically, SBA must now consider one, whether the proposed subcontractor is the incumbent contractor and and eligible to compete for the procurement. Two, whether the prime contractor's proposed management previously served with the subcontractor on the incumbent contract. And three, whether the prime contractor lacks any relevant experience and must rely solely upon its more experienced subcontractor to win the contract. Now, there's a fourth factor that SBA did not specifically adopt. And that factor considers whether the prime contractor plans to hire a large majority of its workforce from the subcontractor. SBA did not specifically adopt this factor because awardees are often required under the so-called non-displacement rule to provide employees of the predecessor contract, essentially a right of first refusal for positions on the follow-on contract. The current administration has reinvigorated that. The rule was introduced under the Obama administration. The Trump administration revoked that provision, and then the the Biden administration has reintroduced it. And the Department of Labor is still working on on implementing regulations, but the obligation does, at least in some sense, through an executive order exist. Another change uh, from the rule is that compliance with limitations on subcontracting now appears to be an affirmative defense to allegations of affiliation under the ostensible subcontractor rule. Limitations on subcontracting, as many small businesses are aware prevent the prime offeror under a small business set-aside contract from subcontracting more than a maximum amount of work to subcontractors that are not similarly situated entities. The tests for applying limitations on subcontracting focus on dollars spent or to be spent for broad types of work, like all services, rather than the more granular analysis required to assess which entity is or entities are performing the primary and vital contractual requirements for purposes of applying the ostensible subcontractor rule. This has particular significance in size protests where a competitor challenges the small business size status of an apparent successful offeror. In a size protest, the protester could, depending on the facts, argue that the apparent successful offeror does not qualify as small under the ostensible subcontractor rule because, for instance, it is unusually reliant upon and therefore affiliated with a subcontractor that does not qualify as small under the applicable NAICS code. The final rule opens a new potential defense to such allegations. Specifically, the rule states that SBA will find that a small business prime contractor is performing the primary and vital requirements of the contractor order and is not unduly reliant on one or more subcontractors that are not small businesses where the prime contractor can demonstrate that it together with any subcontractors that qualify as small businesses will meet the limitations on subcontracting provisions set forth in 13 CFR 125.6 there are however some practical limitations on a contractor's ability to rely on this defense perhaps most notably demonstrating compliance with limitations on subcontracting and size protests could prove difficult unless the proposal contains Clear statements about how work will be allocated among the prime offeror, subcontractors that qualify as similarly situated entities, and other subcontractors. Proposals often lack this level of detail, absent an express solicitation requirement. Very often, proposals describe the work to be performed and nature of the team and what the team is going to do, and not it doesn't necessarily break it down into that type of granular detail.
1: And so it's it's sort it's a timing issue, right, Tom, and that. The, the SBA has created what could potentially be a very important defense, but there's a, there's a question of whether when a protest comes in at OHA, uh, because the compliance with this provision is, it's a contractual provision, compliance is determined under the contract, so it's in a sense a contract administration issue, there's this timing point of showing an intent to comply when you're in this OHA appeal stage.
2: That's right, Mike. And and there's a bit of a disconnect between this and then the GAO and Court of Federal Claims Bid Protest process. So in a typical bid protest, GAO and the Court of Federal Claims essentially presume, absent something clear on the face of the proposal, indicating that the offerer will not comply with limitations on subcontracting. They generally assume that the offerer will comply with those requirements and essentially chalk that up as a matter of responsibility or contract administration it will generally dismiss those types of arguments. So a lot of offerors don't delve into that level of detail. Until now, there's really been little, if any, benefit from doing so, other than potentially the offer opening itself up to a bid protest. Now, if an offeror is potentially concerned about the ostensible subcontractor rule, perhaps even in sort of the the textbook example of where you have a under the predecessor contract You have a prime contractor that qualified as small, has grown to be large, no longer qualifies as small for the recompete. And then they leverage a subcontractor that does qualify as small as the prime contractor. Under that type of a scenario, there may need to the small business prime operator may want to consider whether it should include that level of detail that at least until now, there's been little benefit of providing.
1: Yeah. And so Prudent contractors are going to think about doing that in in, in most cases. Um, And and so I guess probably the last element of the rule is some adjustments on the applicability of, of the ostensible subcontractor rule.
2: Correct. So one change has been that SBA explained that neither limitations on subcontracting nor the ostensible subcontractor rule can apply to contracts below the simplified acquisition threshold. That SBA derived that from the FAR provisions, implementing the limitations on subcontracting and how those apply. And so SBA has now reasoned, well, if compliance with limitations on subcontracting means that you can't be affiliated under the ostensible subcontractor rule test, then it simply shouldn't apply, except under the same standards as limitations on subcontracting. And second, SBA clarified how the ostensible subcontractor rule applies to general contractors performing construction projects. General construction contracts are different from standard procurement contracts because of how performance responsibilities are are allocated. In many procurement contracts, particularly those for services, the prime contractor provides program management while also performing the fundamental contract requirements. In construction, however, subcontractors including those specialized in specific trades and disciplines often perform the majority of the construction work while the prime contractor provides management oversight and supervision the final rule accounts for those differences by specifying that for general construction contracts the primary and vital requirements are supervising overseeing managing and scheduling construction work so essentially the general contractor is going to be responsible for, perform- for performing those services, and to the extent that it performs those, there's no ostensible subcontractor rule issue without going delving into the details of limitations on subcontracting and the nature of the work that subcontractors can perform.
1: Okay. SBA also made certain changes regarding its rules on joint ventures. And those rules, like the ostensible subcontractor rule that we've discussed, they apply beyond the eight a program. So again, we've got this rulemaking that, that it's under the heading of, of the A program, but we've got these changes that apply more broadly. So with respect to the changes to the rules on joint ventures, could you walk us through the highlights of those changes?
2: Absolutely. So first, joint ventures can now be populated and qualify as small if parties to the joint venture meet the size standard in the aggregate. In other words, SBA considers the members of a populated joint venture to be affiliated for purposes of determining the JV's size status. This is likely not going to affect, for instance, mentor-protege joint ventures, which do have to be unpopulated in accordance with SBH regulations, Uh, but it can apply in non-mentor-protege scenarios, so long as in the aggregate, for instance, after all uh, average annual receipts, you know, calculations have, have been uh, performed in accordance with affiliation regulations, the joint venture will still fall underneath uh, the applicable index code size standard. Second, SBA clarified the rule that joint ventures can receive small business set-aside contracts only for the first two years following the first contract award. Specifically, SBA explained that consistent with then-current SBA policy, The two-year limitation does not apply to orders under contract vehicles. This means that small business joint ventures can, for instance, continue to compete for task orders under an IDIQ contract after the two-year period lapses, so long as the IDIQ contract was awarded within the two-year period. And again, this reflects SBA policy. This is not intended to be so much a change as much as a clarification. Third, SBA clarified decision-making for mentor-protege joint ventures. SBA regulations require that the protege is the managing venture control day-to-day contract performance, but SBA allows the mentor to participate in all other corporate governance activities and decisions of the joint venture as is commercially customary. This commercially customary language has been a significant source of frustration for some mentor-protege joint ventures. The SBA Office of Hearings and Appeals and Strategic Alliance Solutions, LLC, and the Court of Federal Claims and Defense Integrated Solutions, LLC, the United States, provided guidance on the extent to which mentors can participate in business decisions of the joint venture. However, those decisions arguably focus principally on litigation decisions, and it's not entirely clear how other types of decision-making Uh, will factor into an analysis of what is and is not, quote unquote, commercially customary. Some uncertainty remains, however, and SBA clarified that decision making about which opportunities to pursue is one, but not the only scenario in which a mentor can participate in decisions of the joint venture. So essentially, SBA, through its rule, clarified that a mentor under certain scenarios, um, and quote unquote, as commercially customary, uh, can exercise negative control over decisions of a joint venture so it still can't exercise affirmative control and then it can't affirmatively on its own direct the operations of the joint venture but it can exercise negative control that is essentially block decisions of the protege without its approval to engage in certain types and to make certain types of business decisions and one of those as we saw on strategic aligned solutions and defense integrated solutions is that the mentor can be involved in decision-making about litigation. Um, and now SBA has made clear that it can also extend to determining what contract opportunities a mentor, protege, joint venture pursues. Now, it's important to, to, to clarify that these are not the only decisions. Again, there are a multitude of other decisions. Um, and some of these you know size protests challenging management and control Uh, provisions and joint venture agreements may turn on what is and is not commercially customary. And there's no SBA authority clearly delineating the the boundaries of, of what commercially customary means.
1: That's a great summary, Tom. Thanks. And so we're glad to have clarified rules from the SBA and additional guidance from the SBA. We're glad to have these Uh, the decisional law that provides additional guidance all on where the lines are for joint ventures. And it's important for small businesses and also large businesses that participate in men or protege JVs to understand where the lines are. But it's still by no means clear where the lines are in all cases for all types of decisions, for all types of participation in joint ventures. And so questions remain. There won't be uh, certainly additional disputes uh, in the future over whether certain involvement has crossed the line. So it's probably fair to say that this is still an issue that companies need to be thoughtful about and where there are questions to seek counsel on that.
2: That's absolutely right, Mike. Uh, when size protests come up challenging the terms of a mentor-protege joint venture agreement, the Office of Hearings and Appeals and before then, SBA area offices, um, as well as the Court of Federal Claims, will scrutinize those agreements to make sure that they're fully compliant. And if there is any gray area, uh, it is possible that the joint venture could find that it loses, based on a, on a technicality, could lose a significant you know, major contract. And so it's important to be very thoughtful and to even err on the side of caution when drafting those agreements to make sure that they don't run afoul of of the rules, and it's not entirely clear at this point the extent to which uh, OHA, the Court of Federal Claims, has an appetite for analyzing what is or is not commercially customary, uh, particularly in the absence of of clear SBA guidance. So uh, it's very important that mentor-protege joint ventures draft these agreements thoughtfully and cautiously. Uh, to set themselves up to be able to defend against a potential size protest.
1: I think that's a a great place to leave it. Very thorough, uh, very, I think very helpful, enlightening conversation about both Ultima and the SBA's rulemaking this year. Um, There's certainly other issues in the small business contracting world that we could touch on. And so it would be great uh, if we could have you back here in the future to discuss those and future developments as we've Either said or hinted throughout, there's all sorts of these issues that are going to continue to evolve. Certainly, the application of the SBA's rules will be interesting. And so, thanks again, Tom, for joining us, and I hope uh, you'll join us again soon.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Mike, and looking forward to continuing this conversation in future episodes.
0: Bill here again. Thanks to Mike and Tom for that thorough analysis of these developments for small businesses. We'll continue to follow SBA's response to Ultima and other changes to its regulations and programs throughout the podcast. That's it for this episode of Bonafide Needs. If you're interested in reading further on any of the topics covered in today's podcast, you can find the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to visit PubK's website for information on our government contracts annual review for 2024. For the first time, our conference will be held live and in person. Join us on February 13th and 14th at the Ronald Reagan International Trade Center in Washington for two days of in-depth discussions and networking. You can find the link to the registration page in our show notes. To keep up with government contracting and legal developments every day, subscribe to PubK at pubkgroup.com. For additional expert analysis and insights, you can find multiple timely and informative blogs at arnoldporter.com. Thanks for listening. You can find bona fide needs on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and YouTube. You can help us reach more listeners by liking, subscribing, or leaving a review. For Arnold & Porter and the Pub K Group, this is Bill Olver. Until next time. Bonafide Needs is a joint production of and copyright Arnold & Porter, providing legal advice and thought leadership for government contractors and the Pub K Group publisher of Daily News and Insights for government contractors and their council. This podcast is produced by Bill Olver and Tina Chin.